All right, guys, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Wish I could have been here last week, not so I could have preached, but so that I could have been here for Kyle's preaching. I was able to listen to, I think I listened to most of the message, and was so encouraged. So thankful for the Lord raising up brethren in our midst that can teach, who are beholden to the scriptures. Um, so thankful for that. But this week we're going to be back in 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2 together. And we're going to read, starting in verse 4, and this morning we'll be considering the text here in verses 4 through 8, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed." Let's pray. Father, we pray that this word this morning that we consider would give life to us, renew our minds, rebuke us, reprove us, exhort us where we need it. Lord, you do these things. I can't do these things. And that's our confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. The last couple of times that we were together looking at 1 Peter, we looked at some of the Old Testament background. We wanted to look at, or I wanted to look at, three different Old Testament texts that are, that are embedded here in verses 4 through 8. And the reason I wanted to do that is because Peter's exhortations to us about being living stones, about, being, about Jesus being rejected by men, about people stumbling over Christ, all of that is rooted in Peter's understanding of these Old Testament texts. So Peter, these aren't independent thoughts for Peter. Peter is rooted in the Old Testament. And that's why he is saying the things he's saying, instructing the way he's instructing with the content, because he's steeped in the Old Testament. Well, these three Old Testament texts are Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah chapter 8. So in Psalm 28, you read in verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In, I'm sorry, yeah, in Isaiah 28, in that particular text, we saw that the Jewish leaders have trusted in alliances with other nations for deliverance from their enemies rather than the Lord. And Isaiah is sent to these, 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 these peoples, these Jewish rulers, to talk to them about this false hope. He actually calls it a covenant of death 
that these, that these Jewish leaders have actually made a covenant of death with surrounding nations and, has for, and have forsaken faith in the Lord of hosts. And so there is this comprehensive judgment that the Lord pr- pronounces on this people over and over in Isaiah. And yet at the same time, he promises that this, this promise of judgment does not mean that he's completely finished with them. And that's where this promise comes in. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In other words, the city is going to be destroyed, the, the nation's going to be completely overrun by the Assyrians first, Babylon second. And yet, this does not mean that God's work is going to stop or that his people are going to be extinguished from the universe, right? He says, No, I'm going to do something. I'm going to lay in Zion, the city of the great king, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So immediately we understand that he's not talking about a big rock, right? He's talking about a person, a person in whom we believe. And God is saying that I'm going to bring this person into human history, and upon him I will build my spiritual house. And everyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. He will fulfill your greatest expectations. (laughs) Your greatest longings for to, to, to be with God and to, to have final shalom and peace and a new heavens, new earth, he will bring about. Do not think for a second because of present trials that he will finally disappoint you. He will not. Again, as that, song, as that hymn just said, even the trials that come into our life, he brings to consume our dross. You know? Not to destroy us. To destroy our sin, that's what he wants. He wants to destroy our fealty and our our. our Reliance is still upon the world. And you increase our faith. But this was, Psalm 20, this was Isaiah 28. And Peter reflects back on Isaiah 28 and says, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one, the cornerstone on whom the church will be built. His person and work is the secure foundation upon which we stand. It is the Lord Jesus himself. And it's something God has done. The next text we looked at was Psalm 118. Psalm 118. In this passage, the psalmist is praising God for giving him deliverance when opposing nations are surrounding him. You can read this in the psalm where he's he's talking about all these nations that have encompassed him to oppose him. The psalmist cries out to the Lord in times of imminent danger, and the Lord answers and saves. Therefore, God is praised for his loving kindness. Over and over, praises God for his loving kindness. And in the midst of the praise of God's salvation, the psalmist interjects this declaration. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, the psalmist says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the context, this appears that the psalmist is the stone. He's the one that's been rejected, surrounded by enemies, opposed. And yet, this particular verse outstrips this psalmist, right? We might say that the psalmist was rejected, yes, but can we really say that the psalmist is the cornerstone? And so Peter, reflecting back on Psalm 118, sees again yet a connection to the true cornerstone, the Lord Jesus. Yes, the psalmist was the one faced with death, but Jesus was as well. The psalmist was the one that needed saving from the Lord, and yes, Jesus was in this same boat. And yes, Jesus was rejected, 
just like this psalmist, but in a far greater way. But Jesus Christ is the crucial stone. He's the stone that the building needs in order to stand. And Peter sees this. And we find out from Psalm 18, Psalm 118, that the builders who reject Christ, we find out in Matthew's gospel, are the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day, and the people that follow in their train. These are the people that actually finally reject the Lord. These are God's people. These were to be the people who, who sort of built the kingdom of God, so to speak, the builders, and they reject the most important piece. And yet, the psalmist says this is the Lord's doing. See, we're okay with thinking about the good things that happen in this life. That's the Lord's doing. Praise the Lord. But the psalmist is saying that the rejection itself also is the Lord's doing. It's not just the resurrection that's the Lord's doing, right? It's not like he just intervenes so that he can save his sin and pull his his son out of a predicament. No, all of it. The delivering over, the rejection, the betrayal, the beatings, all of that is ordained, overseen under God's sovereign control. God is bringing about an amazing thing with what people mean for evil. God brings about an eternal good. And this is marvelous in our eyes. And, And again, I just want to encourage you all to understand that this is a philosophy of history. Your understanding of history is this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You know? Afghanistan's falling apart. Our country is falling apart. We don't understand fully all of what's going on, but what we do know is that this is the Lord's doing. And one day we'll be able to say with full throats, and this is marvelous in our eyes. There are things that are being accomplished right now that you and I have no idea about that God is doing, and we're going we're to think about that a little bit more. But this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. The cross and resurrection that brought final justification of life to all men. What an amazing result. And we see God's wisdom bringing about all of it. So the text we're going to be looking at this morning is the third Old Testament text, and it's Isaiah 8, 14. Isaiah 8, 14. I'm going to give some context to it. And I want to say something here. <laughs> well, let me, let me read what text it is in, in 1 Peter. As Peter says it here. Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter quotes Isaiah 8 with Jesus being the one who is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But in order to appreciate it fully, I want us to go back in the Old Testament and look at some of the context. But I just want to say something here. Like the Lord is so, obviously he's wise. And I did not necessarily pick to be here on this morning as we're going to be talking about these things. But with the state of our nation the recent mandates that have come down from the top and all those kinds of things, this text that we're going to look at this morning is eminently relevant. I mean eminently relevant. And I hope you'll see that. So if you would, turn to Isaiah 8. Isaiah chapter 8. So... The Lord enlists Isaiah in, in the ministry of a prophet. We know that a prophet is someone who is to speak the word of God boldly, clearly, without adding or taking away from it. 
God gives Isaiah a vision in Isaiah 6, one that we're all familiar with, where he, you see the Lord high and lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple, the burning beings all around him crying out, holy, holy, holy. God gives Isaiah this vision because what he's about to send Isaiah into is conflict. And one thing God wants Isaiah to understand is though, listen, you're going to go proclaim to kings what they must do and where their allegiances must lie. And you're going to be rejected. Matter of fact, you're going to preach and I guarantee that they're going to have eyes and they're not going to see and they're going to have ears and they're not going to hear. But I don't want you to ever forget who was on the throne. I'm going to give you a vision of my glory so that you never forget. And God does that to his people. He does that to his saints. He does that to his ministers of the gospel. He puts in them a vision of his glory and his power and his majesty so that men, weak, feeble men and women, will have the boldness to stand before kings. Jesus says they will bring you before kings and authorities, and all of this will be an opportunity for you to speak to them about me. How are we going to do that? Well, there's a throne, and I'm on it, and that throne is where the king of all kings sits, and that king has all authority and has vested you with it. And, uh, and so this is Isaiah. Isaiah understands this. And so what's happened in chapter 7 of Isaiah is you've got Assyria, a nation that has gained ascendancy and power in this region in the Middle East. And they are becoming the top dogs, and they've got a lot of pressure that are being put on the northern tribe of Israel and Syria. And so, as nations do, they want to form allies and alliances. And so the northern tribes with Ephraim are trying to make alliances with, with Syria. And as we understand, they already have. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, you find that it came about in the days of Ahaz, who was king of Judah, son of Jotham, son of Zeziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram in Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Aramans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So think about this, okay? You've got these two nations above you, your little Judah. You've got these two nations that are at your doorstep, and they are there to overcome you and overtake you. Probably, we think, is to make them sort of, sort of enlist them as well to, to create even a bigger alliance because of Assyria coming. And so, what's the response? The people are absolutely terrified. They are looking at death in the face. They are looking at occupation in the face and their hearts are trembling. Right? Lord says in verse 3, chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. And Shir Jashub means a remnant will, will remain. So here, here, it's interesting. <laughs> There's so much in this whole passage, but Shir Jashub, his name means something. God assigns this this, or, or Isaiah, or who, I can't remember exactly how it all came about, but his name means a remnant re will return, and it's kind of like you have the early pictures of the Word made flesh, you know, these, these children that are there representing God's truth and being a signal to Ahaz. And what's the signal? The signal is, listen, a remnant will, will remain. It's a signal of hope, really. 
a remnant will, will remain. And you can be that remnant, Ahaz, if you'll trust the Lord, but we're going to find out he doesn't. But Isaiah and his son go out to meet Ahaz the king, and they say to him, verse 4, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Right? Two stubs of smoldering firebrands. You know, these nations are breathing heavy, breathing hot, intimidating. Right? And God says they're little, they're little matchsticks in my sight. Be calm. Don't be afraid. Think of that. He's not, he's not talking about theoretical here. He's talking about the reality that cannons are, are, are pointing to your nation right now. But what's the word to Ahaz? Ahaz, your leader, your king, be calm. Have no fear. And do not be faint-hearted. Don't crumble. Don't go, don't go hide. You're going to want to hide. You're going to want to faint. Don't do it. Because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's really what the nations are to God, right? Isaiah chapter 40, what are the nations? Drop from a bucket, he says. Think of that. Drop from a bucket. You know, you're carrying a bucket along. Inadvertently, a drop spills out, and you never even notice it. Right? That's the nations to God. That's the nations to God. And, and Isaiah's coming to Ahaz and saying, this is your God. And your God does not view these men as some insurmountable force. Right? They are matchsticks. They are matchsticks. Don't fear them, because Aram with the Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel and the king of, the, of its mist. Listen, Isaiah's laying it on thick. What are they saying? Well, what they're saying is, let's go terrorize it. Let's make for ourselves a breach in its walls. Let's set up our own king. He's saying, this is what they're saying. They're gonna, they want to come inflict terror on you. He's laying it on pretty thick. He didn't have to go there. Why are you saying that? Gosh, you're being so negative. Being dramatic. No, it's in the face of the real threats that he says. Have no fear. Don't be faint-hearted. These are firebrands. God says, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now with another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. God is basically saying, look, if, if, if you sort of boil it down to how this is all being spearheaded, it's just by one measly person. It's just the son of Remaliah. He's the head. Pika, he, he's the head. But we have a head, don't we? We have a head. Who's our head? The Lord Jesus, King of Kings. And that's why God says, listen, these guys are no big deal at all. And if you will believe, you will ask. But if you won't, you will not. Faith. What do you trust In what do you trust as you consider the prospect of your own death? What do you trust when faced with the prospect of your own familial upheaval 
What do you trust? Where does your trust lie? The Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, look, I want you to test me. Ask me a sign. I'll I'll extend myself. My word's enough. I'll extend myself even further. He says, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Oh, that's so noble. Far be it from me, Lord, to put you out. The reality is we shouldn't test the Lord, right? There are things that we should do in our lives that shouldn't tempt him. But when God says to do it, why not? And he's feigning humility here, and what it is, it's a facade, and it's a mask for his own unbelief. See, he had machinations already going on, and it did not involve the Lord. It involved his alliance with Assyria. See, he thinks, I mean, it's so easy, isn't it? Am I going to trust him through this prophet? You know, I don't see this God. I've certainly heard about him. My dad believed in him, Uzziah. He had a rough go, though. But, but here's this nation over here, and I mean, they've, you know, they're 10 for 10, right? They're Assyria, they, they squash everybody they come into contact with. Yeah, I hear you, Isaiah, but, you know, I wouldn't want to do that to the Lord. And in his mind, he's thinking, that's pretty naive, Isaiah. I'm a little wiser than you, a little wiser than God. That's what's going on here. It's insidious. It's insidious. You know, you can be that way in your life, though. It's not hard to do. Where God wants you to do something, and you feign spirituality when in fact, it's just a lot of unbelief. Is that right? God wants you to do something, but you consider that there's, there's either better ways to do it, or there's reasons you shouldn't, or all of these different things, and usually all boils down to fear as to why you won't do it, or, or whatever. God says, look, I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz says, no, that's okay. Well, Isaiah responds, the Lord responds, verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Now you really are testing me. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. And it's interesting because he says that this child will come about after God will bring final destruction. He said, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. You're scared of these two guys? They're going to be gone one day. And this sign that's going to come, it's going to be too late for you to see it. Verse 17, Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Does God take faith seriously? I think he does. I think he takes it very seriously. Are we going to trust him and what he said, or are we going to live by our own understanding? 
our own wisdom, our own machinations, our own schemes. So this is the background here, okay? This is the background. God says he's gonna end up bringing Assyria and Assyria is gonna come. Not only will Assyria decimate Ephraim and Syria, but then it will reach all the way down into Judah. God promises that. Now in chapter eight, verse one, then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. So now the Lord is in, in the business now of, of making this crystal clear to all of Judah. I want you to take a big tablet, I mean big, and I want you to write on it in ordinary letters. Literally, it's, it's kind of like saying in uppercase, crystal clear, just letters that you can read. Swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. That's what's going around. That's what's going around Judah day by day is this sign. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. What is that? Judgment's coming. It's coming fast. That's what it is. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. In other words, when this is written, let it be known that these two were here and saw it written by the command of the Lord. There are these witnesses, these faithful witnesses, that this is exactly what the Lord says. You know, we're called witnesses in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah has this whole theology of witnesses. And it's really interesting because it prophesies that we will be his witnesses. What are witnesses? Witnesses are people that testify, that testify about what they've seen and they've heard. Right? That's what witnesses are. And here... It's, 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 you know, it's uh, Uriah and Zechariah, but in the New Testament, who, who are the witnesses? We are. You know, we are the ones that go publish, swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. That's what we go do. In this particular context, you know, it has to do with the imminent destruction bring, brought about by Assyria, but, but you can see how all of this ties in with our marching orders under the new covenant. So this happens, verse 3, so I approached the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the Lord, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king. So again, this child, sort of the word made flesh, his name means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Oh, there he is, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey constant reminder of what God's going to do. God continues to tell Isaiah, again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh near Jerusalem, and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah in these northern nations, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over its channels, go over its banks, then it will sweep on into Judah, overflow, pass, reach to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There's this grief that God has over the fact that this happens. This is his land, right? And what's the application here? Verse 9 Be broken, O peoples, be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. Go ahead and gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. 
Devise a plan. But it will be thwarted. State a proposal. But it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. God is with us. That's God's message to the nations. The nations that right now, more and more coalescing to target Christians more and more, more and more, their outcome is shattered. That's what it is. Devise a plan. Our current administration, devise a plan, right? Afghanistan, devise a plan. Chinese government, devise a plan. And what's going to happen in the end is it will all be shattered. But now the Lord looks at Isaiah directly, and he has some words for Isaiah in specific. Because Isaiah lives in Judah. It's not like Isaiah lives far away, you know, in the east, and pops into Judah every now and then. He lives there. He's around the people that are hearing this from these northern nations that are coming to intimidate and terrorize. He's there. He's living in it all. And you can imagine the people there are terrified. I'd already said that their hearts were shaking like trees in the wind. And he's living in that. And you know what his potential tendency would be? To be afraid as well. And so what does the Lord do? Verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. Now, when we think about walking in the way of his people, I mean, we're thinking of lifestyle, typically, but here he explicitly says what he means by what way you are not to walk in, Isaiah, and what way is that? Well, in their, in their frantic clamor about this impending issue that's happening in the north, you are not to say, God says to Isaiah, you are not to say, a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. So what what does this mean? Well, one thing that we can say is that God is telling Isaiah that there are certain things you must not say. You are not to say conspiracy. That's the way of this people. The way of this people is, I wonder how you think it's going to go down. What what would we do? The fear is palpable. And God says to Isaiah, he says it with mighty power. Literally in the original, he takes him by the hand. He says, don't you walk in the way of this people. They're going to be frantically scrambling trying to sort this out. And they're going to be saying conspiracy. He said, Isaiah, let it not come out of your mouth. In regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. Now, the conspiracy could be, perhaps it could be rumors that Isaiah was hearing that he was going to face certain judgment or disrepute by Ahaz because he opposed Ahaz's tactic of linking with Assyria. Perhaps his reputation was on the line in this instance. So when God says don't call a conspiracy what these call, people call a conspiracy could just be a message to him to maybe keep a clear conscience. Don't capitulate to people's opinions of you in light of what is circulating. That could be, that could be in it. That could be possible. 
I think more likely, though, given the context, the more likely conspiracy could just have to do with their fears of what is happening all around them. Again, the people, listen, the people have heard that there is an army camped several hundred miles in the north that are gunning for you. The people have heard this. They are genuinely potentially facing certain destruction from the opposing nations of Ephraim and Syria and are afraid. The language of fear is, is, is all over the text in both chapter 7 and chapter 8. In which case the Lord is telling Isaiah, do not fall prey to the common speculations and conspiracies that are rampant such that you begin to be afraid like the people. You can just hear all the people, you know, Isaiah wanting to come to him and say, listen, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. And you can just hear the people thinking, is this guy realistic? What's he talking about? They're right there. But you can just think about what's going on in people's lives. Maybe they'll come from this direction. Maybe that means we should go further south. Or maybe they'll come from this direction. Maybe we should go further west or east. Who knows? Whatever it is the Lord says, do not say conspiracy. Do not get wrapped up in these things. I really don't know what else this means if it's not these things. Do not give in to their fearful preoccupation of what may or may not happen. Do not fear what they fear or dread what they dread. So just to illustrate this a little bit, think, of, think if we just heard news that on our west and east coasts we were facing threats of Chinese nuclear subs that had a lock on major cities. Major cities on American soil. How would you feel? What would you be thinking? I mean, the the protectors in here, like the dads, you know, we're going to be thinking some things, some of those good things, right? It's good to think about ways to prepare for what could happen, right? And that's similar to what they were going on, what was going on here. But there would, there would be talk and, and frantic and, and all kinds of things that, that would come about. And really, it, it is that way right now in our country in many ways, isn't it? The fear in our country is palpable. The fear in the Christian community is palpable. What about this mandate? What about that mandate? Are they coming for us? All of these kinds of things. They're watching every move we make. And what would God's word be to us in those moments as believers? It would be, don't fear what they fear. And you'd think, well, wait a minute. I mean, I know most of the time we shouldn't be afraid, but now, I mean, come on, Lord, we should be afraid now, right? No. No, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Do not fear what these people fear or dread what they dread. 
Don't become a fearful person yourself. You know, the interesting point is that in the Gospels, we don't have Jesus bemoaning or complaining really one time about the fact that the Romans were on his soil, ethnically speaking. You know, we we didn't have, we don't have anything, any statement at all about his own personal angst with regard to the fact that he's living in an occupied land. It's just interesting to note that. Now, why is that? Is that because he wasn't living in a democracy? Or was it because he had bigger fish to fry? Was it because that he was trying to establish a kingdom that had no end? I think that's probably the answer. The reason you don't hear it from him is because it's not his great concern. He can tell his disciples, disciples, do not fear. When you go proclaim, do not fear them. Why? Number one, your your heavenly Father knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. Your death and your life are in his hand. That is not naive. That is not over-spiritual. That is actually what Jesus says. Therefore, do not fear them. Do not fear them. You are more valuable than many sparrows. But again, you talk like that, right? You make statements like that, which trust the Lord, cultivate a fear in the Lord, and you're, you're written off as, I don't know, naive? Ostrich sticking your head in the sand? Right? Something like that. So be it. So be it. This illustration about China out for our American, out to own America is really not that far-fetched. The America we do know of is crumbling. Our moral fabric is torn into pieces in, in many places. The Lord is giving America up to what it really wants. It's hard to watch hard to stomach. There is good coming from that. But it is becoming a society more and more without God. And I I understand that it's not everyone in America that wants the impossibility of cosmic justice, but unfortunately the people in power, government, technology, want this. And unfortunately, it's money and power that will steer the ship and the masses. And ideologies, control of the media, those kinds of things. But even in America right now, the Christian community, you have people completely taken with talks of conspiracies that abound, frantically connecting this dot, these dots, these articles, these videos, in many ways giving themselves over to more and more fear and trusting their own strategies rather than resting in the Lord. It's very easy to get sucked into it. Now, for all of you who are mad that I just said that, I will qualify it. But I want to say that because, again, God is coming to Isaiah and to us saying, you are not to say conspiracy. In other words, this is not to be something that just always is coming up out of your mouth. 
the information that we have coming comes in so fast. And wanting to find the next data chart or the next article can develop an insatiable appetite for it and a preoccupation. And some of these charts and videos are very true and helpful, actually. And it is very good to be informed in a big picture sense. It's good to know what's inside these vaccines. Is that a bad thing? That's a very good thing. You should know, if you're going to take the shot, (laughs) you need to know what's in the shot. That makes sense, right? You need to know what the history of tyranny looks like. It's good to know. It's good to know what, how socialism works out, communism works out. Arguably, we're headed toward a soft tyranny, socialism. Maybe we're already there, I don't know. It's good to know these things. So it's not as if these things don't matter. But there is just something that matters more. Fundamentally, there is just something that matters more. So much more. And what is it? Verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. After we've done our homework, not even after, while we're doing our homework, Our regard, that inner sense of our recognition and understanding of who God is must stay unmoved. He must stay the God who is holy. The Lord of hosts, he says, the Lord of armies. He must stay there. He must be your fear. He must be your dread. And what God is telling Isaiah is like, listen, You can go too far to where this fear of God and the grandeur of who He is begins to be so diminished because you're so fearful by resin or pika. You are so fearful by all these things that are happening. You have forgotten the king on the throne. That's what can happen. That's why He says, listen, be careful about what comes out of your mouth because it betrays what's in your heart and what you are preoccupied with. It is the Lord of hosts that must remain our fear. If he is not, we will stop all good works, all faith. We will become scared. We will not reach out. We will put our lights under a basket, and we will keep our mouths shut. And this cannot happen. It cannot happen. We have one person to fear. And it is not Jing Jing, whatever his name is, or Joe Biden. One person to fear is the Lord of hosts. He, and, and you know what happens? You know what happens when he solely is your fear? When he is that sun shining in your soul? He becomes the sanctuary. That's what it says. And that's what we're looking for, aren't we? I mean, with, with all, the, all the opinions about what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what we're trying to say is, how are we going to be safe? How are we going to plan? How are we going to be successful? How are we going to find refuge? How are we going to escape all this impending doom? He just told you. He will be your sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? 
Well, throughout the Old Testament, the sanctuary is where God dwelled. Ultimately, it, it can be synonymous with refuge. We think, we really think, that if we, can, if we can think hard enough, prep enough, we will be safe. We will not be safe if that is our track. We will be safe if God is the one we fear. We think that if, if we store up treasure, if we, if, we, if we plan well and have big bank accounts, that, that one day, will, that will mean that we're okay for the future. I'm not against being prudent. I'm just saying that's what we think. But Jesus says that I provide for you so far as you seek my kingdom. That's the insurance. The insurance is you seek the kingdom of God, and he adds all these things to you because he knows you need them. That's the insurance. But we have no insurance if we're not seeking the kingdom first. These people tried to seek something else, and guess what God said? I'm going to strip you of all that you find security in. I'm stripping it all away. I'm going to take a razor and shave you all the way down. to your legs with Assyria. I'm just saying, we have to keep our hearts before the Lord at all times. He must stay our fear, our dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. The way you respond to the things going on in this culture will determine what your sanctuary is. Now, again, I'm not saying don't have freeze-dried food. I'm not saying don't have rice and beans, okay? You want to have those things, that's great. Or we can just all go to the Cowdens because they have more than, you know, we all need. So we can just go over there and they're ready to roll. But when I hear of people saying, I've got a 55-gallon drum of ammunition and all these other kinds of things, bomb shelters, hey, maybe you can do that with the calm of the fear of the Lord. Maybe you can. But you've got to kind of ask yourself some questions if, if that's you. Got to ask yourself some questions if, that you, if that's you. Again, not saying we shouldn't prep. Not saying we should be stupid. But there is something that matters so much more than that. And that's cultivating the fear of God in your heart. Keeping your minds in The best way you prep for the impending doom that may or may not come in whatever form, and it seems like it is, is to fear the Lord. That's the way you prep. What does that mean? What well, means you immerse yourself into the scriptures, Right? Bind up the testimony, verse 16. Seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will evenly look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? My point is this, why would you consult mediums and spiritists? You consult them because you want to know what your fortunes may be, what your future may be. But see, the thing is, we already know what that is. But you will lose sight of it. If you don't go, as the scriptures say here, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
I didn't have him up here. Um, Shep probably remembers his name, pastor in China. One of the key ways he prepped his people for persecution is number one, by telling them that they're going to suffer persecution. (laughs) But number two, by the word of God. By inculcating the word of God deeply. More than you ever have. And can I also say, kids that get older want cell phones that uh, have ties to the internet. I don't want to lay down a law here, but just consider that wisely. Please. You want to know how fear comes in? You want to know how ideology slips in? It's through that device. Be very careful as a parent that you're responsible for your children (laughs) about the access they have to the internet. Just say that. To the law and to the testimony. And if these people do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. These people that thought that they were doing what they needed to do to protect themselves, God says they're the ones who are going to be famished. They're the ones who are going to be hard-pressed. They will be the ones who are hungry, he says. And they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. The only safe haven you have that any human being has is in the Lord of hosts. People are going to want to run to the mountains and run to the hills to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And will they be able to? That's silly. Your only hope this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ is definitely not your bank account. It's not whether or not you have a vaccine. And it's definitely not if you've got enough freeze-dried food. Your only ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. Your only safe refuge. I had Dave singing songs about refuge this morning because your only refuge, truly, I mean this, your only refuge is in Jesus. You know, the other day, we, we had a storm. I think it was a couple weeks back. And that storm lasted all night. You guys remember that storm? It just lasted all night. It was like... It was like five hours of rolling thunder. And there were times when that thing would get like... I mean, really, really deep. And I was sitting there in bed like, oh, gosh, this is kind of crazy. You know, is the roof going to come off the house? You know, is it going to be shaken down to its core foundation? And, you know, in those moments you think like, where am I going to go? What, what can, where can I... That's what you think, right? And in those moments I thought, man, so thankful I have a refuge in Jesus. Because one day, those thunderclaps of God's holiness will come. They're they're happening right now before his throne. Those thunderclaps will come. And people are going to be like, what do I do? But then it'll be too late. But now, he's a refuge, isn't he? Now is the day of salvation. Now's the time where we push people to the only refuge that actually means anything. So much easier to preach this, right, than do it. But brethren, please encourage me to do it. I want to encourage you to do it. Let's make the Lord of hosts our fear. Let's let's pray that he cultivates this in us more and more. You know what the fear of God is? It's really just the vision of God. Right? 
The Lord of hosts comes and he sits down on the mountain in Exodus. Lightning, flashes of thunder, smoke, all these kinds of things. And he says that he, he does that so that the people might fear me. He gave them this vision of who he was so that they might fear me. God gave Isaiah a vision in chapter 6. He can give you that vision. Go to Isaiah 6, read it, think about it, parse it out, think of that. God, show me what this is. And more and more have God reveal himself to you so that you are not moved. When real threats do come, Jeremiah 17.5 says this. Or 17. Yeah, 17.5. This is, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Cursed is the man. And turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes but will lie in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The man trusting in his flesh, relying upon man for his security, will be a tumbleweed that exists in barren places. It will know no real peace, no fruit-bearing, no prosperity. It will not experience the feeling that comes from the presence of the Lord. But the man who trusts in the Lord, who relies on the Lord for his wisdom, for his security, will be like a tree that bears fruit no matter the state of the culture around him. That's what it says. He will not fear when the heat comes. When the heat comes. Why? Because you are right next to the river. You're right there. You won't fear. Your nourishment, your replenishment come from the Lord. You know his word. It's dwelling in you richly. You got brethren that encourage you in this. this. These are the people that trust in God. Trusting in the Lord breeds peace, calm, fruit, love. Think of that, you know. How do you know that you're caught up too much in it? Is your love cold? Are you less and less inclined to want to seek the kingdom? Are you more and more inclined to want to hide? Is that, that's how you know. I do not want to be a place that shuts down discussions on the state of our culture or our nation. I do not want to be a place like that. Because these things are on everybody's minds. But we better be a place. <laughs> we better be a place that's so quick to put them in their perspective. very quickly. We better talk like God. Oh, Biden? Firebrand? Smoldering? Matchstick? Don't worry about him. Oh, Xi Jinping? Yeah. Matchstick. So I don't want to shut down any discussion, but I want it to be in the right perspective. Trusting God means you trust him just like 
Just like every wife has to trust their husband when he's driving, right? Even though we know that it's hard sometimes for that to happen. Paige may think she knows the faster way, the quicker way, better way. Sometimes I just have to say, babe, I've lived in Greenville all my life, right? The place where you're from just got roads like two years ago, (laughs) right? Wherever it is, Quarter, Missouri, which is the dirt trails, I think. She just needs to trust me. I live here. I know where I'm going. And that's what it means to trust the Lord. We trust the Lord because he's driving the ship. Right? And we are his secure cargo. We are. We are. Bought with the blood of his son. And we're going to be okay. Well, maybe next week I'll get to the verse that Peter quotes. I don't know how long it would go, but what an amazing passage. What an amazing passage. God says, Isaiah, trust me. Fear me. Because both houses of Israel stumble over me. And therefore, I've become a trap to them. And that's not a good thing. The very thing that they, the very thing they think that they're kicking to the side, just a mere annoyance, is the very thing that traps them. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Oh Lord. We just pray that you would give us faith, hope, and love. You would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know what is the hope of our calling, to know the eternity that awaits us, to know the glories that await us. Lord, for us, the best is yet to come. Lord, that from joy and from a sense of freedom and rest in Jesus Christ, we would be eagerly, eager and excited to proclaim this treasure that we found in the field. And Lord, for my brethren in here who are struggling, perhaps they're depressed. Perhaps they're just trying to make sense out of what's going on around them in this culture. Pray that they would be able to lift their heads up above the clouds of clamor and see your smiling face. See your throne room like you show us in Revelation chapter 4. A throne full of light and glory a throne where you have no competitors. Lord, that we would all have that faith and that hope. Um, Lord, really, ultimately, we don't have any reason to fear. We don't have any reason to doubt you. And sometimes we still do. And Lord, for that, can we just tell you, we're just so thankful for the blood of Jesus. The fact that a righteous man, righteous woman can fall seven times and get back up. Oh gosh, Lord, this is, this is amazing. What, what peace that gives us. We don't go out there preaching ourselves. We go out there preaching Jesus. The one who can take away sin. The one whose, whose grace abounds more than our sin. 
Oh, Lord, there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. And we just, we just so, so thank you for that. Lord, use this little body. Lord, you're doing so many awesome things in our midst. All of these things are answers to prayer. All of these things are just things that we don't deserve. Um, continue to help us, Lord, to live worthy of the calling of the gospel that you brought us into. And, um, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.